Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sue the suburbs! Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and Jerusalem Demsis from Vox.com. Jerusalem, welcome to the show for your first time ever, but I think not not the last. Hello. Hi, happy to be here. Um, So Jerusalem has written a couple of big articles recently on a topic that Weeds fans know is near and dear to my heart, um, housing in America and and zoning policy, and want to to talk about that stuff. Um, Just to start with a, you know, dime store overview of housing in the United States. Um, In many communities, it is very expensive to get a house. Um, The price is related to the underlying price of land, but we have technologies that allow you to put more houses on a given piece of land, such as apartment buildings, row houses. People can live in basement apartments. There's lots of things that can be done, Uh, but this is often illegal. Uh, We find large swaths of major cities and even larger swaths of their suburbs have uh, rules saying you can only have single-family detached houses. Sometimes those houses have to be on large lots. Uh, There are a lot of restrictions. You you can't just, you know, tack on an extra bedroom and rent it out to somebody. Uh, And a big topic in the policy world is how can we alleviate those constraints and get people to allow for more house building in sort of desirable communities where where prices are high and, and people would like to live. Um, so what's the answer? How do you how do you fix everything? <laughs> well, I'm not going to pretend to have the whole answer here, but this first article I wrote about America's racist housing rules was really um, to discuss how the Biden administration from the federal um, side of things could engage on an issue that is largely a state and local issue. So like Matt said, there are two problems you're trying to solve here. One is there's just not enough housing because of some of these rules, whether they're single family only zoning requirements or height restrictions restrictions or minimum lot sizes that um, all of which have the effect of banning um, any kind of multifamily unit dwelling that would become cheaper on average because you are using the same plot of land to house more people. So all these things end up being illegal. And so 
there's not enough housing to begin with, whether it's affordable housing or market rate housing in a lot of um, high productivity cities, but also there's not the type of housing in high opportunity neighborhoods in these cities. A lot of times, if there are apartment buildings or there are duplexes, they're segregated into a part of town that you know usually entrenches poverty rather than allowing for social mobility. So um, the federal government's avenue into engaging with this is the Fair Housing Act, which protects against discrimination on a variety of, um, uh, of vectors, whether uh, classes, um, whether it's people with disabilities, uh, from race, color, national origin, religion, all these different types of things. And the way the Biden administration is able to kind of come in here is that, you know, the federal government has not just the obligation to make sure that it's not discriminating, but to, quote, affirmatively further fair housing, which means that, you know, anyone, whether it's a mortgage lender, whether it's a realtor, whether it's, you know, a local government that is pursuing policies that can undermine, um, you know, equality um, under the law is going to be uh, actually committing an unconstitutional act. So, you know, the way that they can engage is is, is in a few ways. I think the, the best way would be if you could get everyone to kind of buy in. You want local buy in because, you know, the history of uh, segregation in America is one where, you know, the federal government steps in at one point and then, you know, uh, racism is ingenious. It comes up with a bunch of different ways and methods in order to continue discriminating because there are many ways to do that, whether it's, you know, height restrictions or minimum things. And you can you can always come up with a new regulation to keep people out. So, you know, the Obama administration in 2015 put forth a rule which tried to bring, you know, localities to the table to get them to redo their zoning codes to really convince them that there was a way to not harm their existing residents, but also increase opportunity for everyone. Um, Trump administration undid this rule. Biden is uh, looking to reinstate it. So you want to push people into this kind of a collaborative program to make sure that you're not getting a lot of bad backlash on the ground. But there are a lot of really, really bad actors. So uh, a big part of the article is about, you know, the legal remedies that need to be um, put in place in order to ensure that people understand that they're not going to be allowed to operate with impunity anymore. And I think it's the same theory as like, you know, any kind of crime uh, prevention. You can just increase the penalty of, you know, committing a crime unless you also increase the likelihood that someone's going to get caught. And, you know, since the Fair Housing Act has been passed, it has never been fully enforced. It's never been enforced in a way that localities feel like they could get caught and punished for behaving um, in an unconstitutional manner. So I think a big part of the solution has to be that Biden has to make an example out of the worst offenders here, or at least the offenders in areas where they feel untouchable. And, you know, there's some political problems there because a lot of these folks are in blue cities led by blue uh, mayors and uh, Democratic governors. But um, if you're serious, which Biden indicated on the campaign trail that he was about a eliminating exclusionary zoning and making sure you're opening up opportunity to everyone, it really does require a level of engagement on um, the legal side, as well as trying to collaborate with local governments. You know, you're explicitly acknowledging that like this is both a political and policy fight, but I think it's worth teasing those two things out a little bit more because in your piece, which is super, super awesome um, and highly recommended, and we'll put it in show notes, there is a certain impact litigation strain of argument that some of your sources are making that like, that in order to really move the Fair Housing Act forward and like give the federal government a role, the federal government's going to have to get comfortable with pushing the envelope and like bringing harder cases and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of making it easier to enforce federal housing law that way. Mm -hmm. But you're also at the same time, very astutely situating this in the historical pattern of like, when the federal government decides that its role is to move the needle on 
civil rights impact litigation, there is substantial local and state backlash that on an issue like this, where, you know, the federal government is really kind of stepping in and doing like role modeling work or trying to trying to shape norms rather than actually being the decider, that's going to end up, you know, for every one case you win, there are nine jurisdictions that you can't bring cases against that will, you know, develop the kind of next generation restrictions that you were talking about earlier. So it's worth understanding that these are fundamentally two different problems, right? There's the there's the question of what is the most effective tool to get immediate change given the tools that the federal government has in its toolbox? And then the separate question of given the history of you know civil rights policy in the US, what is a politically sustainable model for change. And it's not that those two things are necessarily in odds. What you've just articulated is an agenda to kind of square both of them. But it does mean that you have to be thinking simultaneously about where the point is kind of changing the expectations or, or, you know, changing the substance of what federal courts construe as fair housing law and where it's just a question of, you know, being insistent in not just necessarily like making an example of because that isn't necessarily a certainty of apprehension thing, but being consistent in bringing lots of lawsuits and making it, you know, making the cost of passing a given restriction higher because you can expect that there will be litigation out of it, while also thinking about, okay, if you're bringing lawsuits against every city in America, you know, how likely is that to create a sustained backlash versus doing things that are less aggressive, but perhaps less immediate in their impact to kind of build a long-term appetite for less restrictive housing codes. Yeah. Well, so I also think, you know, there's two um, sort of aspects to this, right? And like, one is that the the Obama administration, right, Jerusalem, you, you referenced uh, their affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, which managed to be in this like whatever is the opposite of a sweet spot of like <laughs> it, it was like very c- controversial right and, like republicans were really upset about it stanley kurtz wrote all these th- pieces for national review about how obama was going to burn down the suburbs right yeah just to connect the dots for folks this is when when trump was saying in 2020 that joe biden and cory booker wanted to abolish the suburbs this is what he was talking about no no i actually want to distinguish this cory oh. booker has a different proposal I, so so <laughs> Obama had this affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. It was making a lot of people very upset. But at the same time, if you talk to advocates for more housing, they were not that enthusiastic about it. Like they were supportive, but like nobody was telling me, okay, if this rule goes through and it holds up in court, like we're fixing housing in America, right? It was a very um, nuanced sort of compliance system that was going to probably get some projects authorized that are currently being outlawed. So for example, if you were a town in which there was literally no place that an affordable housing developer could put up an apartment. Uh, the AFF edge rule would probably have allowed you to gain some kind of purchase there. But what you look, what you see in most jurisdictions is that like the situation isn't that extreme. It's not that like there are zero apartment buildings in Brookline, Massachusetts. It's that like in general, despite prices being sky high in the Boston suburbs, you can't 
just like arbitrarily purchase some land in one of them, replace the buildings that are there with different denser buildings, right? And and Obama's rule wasn't going to do that, right? So one issue here is like, could you adopt a much more aggressive litigation strategy? And then could you win the cases, right? Like Republican judges dominate the federal courts and have not traditionally been super into disparate impact legal theories, but this is a little bit of an own the libs kind of thing. Where, <laughs> exactly. Like one way of phrasing it is that like, you know, like excessive economic regulation in blue states has been like the real crippling impediment to social justice. So you could imagine a Republican judge being like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go for it. Um, in, in a way that's different from the like Obama, like compliance culture rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing is just framing it. Right. Like a statement by the president of the United States that restrictive zoning rules are a major source of racial inequity in the United States is a powerful political statement. Right. Now, who that moves is itself an interesting question. But like there was this great story in uh, Paul Schwartzman wrote in, in The Washington Post about a rezoning effort in D.C., And it's clear that like in the District of Columbia, right, where the population is about half black, half white, and the white people are very liberal, that this is giving people who don't actually want change in their neighborhoods some serious problems. You know, like Mm -hmm. their rabbi is yelling at them. Um, They're acting really defensive, right? Because like the, the, the claim is like rhetorically powerful here and probably in some other places in the country. Mm hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing about that article, though, is I think it really speaks to the lack of elite consensus around what the, quote, Democratic versus Republican position is here. Um, You know, you have the wife of one of Biden's deputy chief of staff who is quoted opposing this new development in opposition to the stated Biden principles there. So, I mean, there's clearly a lot to be done here to get Democrats on board at the elite level. And, you know, there's this really good paper done by Marble and Nall. These are two uh, researchers, one at um, Santa Barbara, uh, UC Santa Barbara, and one at Stanford. And they kind of talk about the lack of elite consensus and how that could be undermining Uh, the ability for people at the local level to decide what is the democratic position here and it allows them kind of to differentiate. And at the end of the day, they go through and they kind of uh, present a bunch of different arguments to people about zoning and whether they'd be okay with an apartment building in their backyard or, uh, you know, different arguments for why they should be in favor of it. And quoting from the piece now, they say that while self-interest does not fully overcome political principles, homeownership remains a high stakes investment that prompts Americans to treat their ideological commitments as secondary considerations. And so that's something where that's not normal. Like usually people are so tied to their, you know, their democratic identity that they will, you know, kind of ignore self-interest in a lot of cases to be in line with that. And I think that that is going back to this framing question here that we were talking about is while the federal government has to kind of engage these issues on a fair housing level, I actually think it's really useful to start thinking about what the messaging around this should be. And I think there's a lot of conflicting evidence here. There was a New Hampshire study that tried to get at convincing individuals to be in favor of more housing. And one of the economic arguments, which kind of was just like talking about having economists say that it was important to deregulate and that, you know, you would increase the average resident income in the Boston metropolitan area by 13% and that, you know, it could boost the economy by 10%. Like that was actually extremely unpopular and that did not convince folks. What convinced folks was this fairness argument, which was, 
I think in my head, also an economic argument, but it talked about how these regulations are unfair to working families and that everyone knows that in some towns, um, they're much more expensive to buy a house in and they have better schools and people can't access that. And that does really well. But I, I think there's a question here of really how you want to message this, even though the Biden administration is forced to come at this legally from uh, racial justice and uh, you know a fair housing perspective, even if it's um, not necessarily on protections for race, it could be on familial status or whatever it is. But you know what they say publicly and I don't know if the best thing is for Biden to be out there talking about this as a racial justice question. I think it probably makes sense for him to be talking to individual party heads, whether it's mayors and governors and county executives, and especially in these really in these places where there's so many gains to be had, whether it's in the D.C. metropolitan area, the New York metropolitan area, San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, L.A., like all these places. I mean, if you were to able to really reduce the, the harm being done from the government side, that will do a lot to change things. And I think that that kind of gets at, Dara, what you were talking about earlier, this kind of dichotomy here between you need to get more of these people on board. It cannot just be this top-down uh, stick approach. And I think that's one of the benefits of AFFH, though, is that it at least brought the stakeholders to the table to have at least somewhat of a productive conversation with HUD to try to figure out what could be done in a friendly way. And I think that also when we're talking about what the legal aspect is, it's helpful to think about like what these cases actually look like and what they would require from the federal government. Because you know it's not just people saying things like, oh, like, you know, I don't want black people living in my in my neighborhood anymore. That kind of rhetoric is slowly filtering out, though um, it's not fully gone. There, there's an interesting case recently where someone compared a new development to the show Cops. And I think we all know what they meant by that. It's this question of disparate impact that what is becoming relevant. That's what pushing the uh, envelope on the legal side would actually mean now, um, where, you know, you need a bunch of economists, you need planners, you need sociologists all staffed up at HUD um, talking about uh, and, and, and writing reports on how these individuals own decisions in these specific areas are leading to harms on um, protected groups of individuals. And, you know, that's really expensive. And I don't think we can like, I don't think the goal is ever to like sue every single city or anything like that. The goal is to definitely just create some kind of deterrent effect on the worst excesses of how this is being implemented at the local level. But um, that's a really expensive thing to do. And so a big signal to us about whether Biden is taking this seriously or not is like, is he staffing up um, the fair housing office in HUD with the types of people that would be necessary to even build these kinds of cases? Is he directing the Department of Justice to work with Secretary-designate uh, Marsha Fudge and say that, like, you need to be pushing the envelope here and be willing to take on these disparate impact cases? And you're right, Matt. I know you mentioned that, you know, there are obviously judges that are hostile to this type of analysis that live in the federal bench. But at the same time, like, I think it's extremely expensive and also terrible PR to be sued as, like, the city of San Francisco or, like, Marin County or whatever it is as being a racist town. That's terrible PR. And like, especially if you're talking about all this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of these places, they end up settling for these kinds of lawsuits. I don't think it ends up going all the way. But I think you need to create that kind of a deterrent effect for it to be really meaningful change. There is a ton of stuff in the kind of messaging landscape that you just laid out. And I think that I, I want to save that for a bit because it's it's relevant to a lot of the kind of intra-democratic coalition conversations happening right now, especially if we're talking in practice about fights between a democratic federal government and democratic states and localities. But mm -hmm. I, I want you to kind of talk a little bit more about disparate impact, because I think even as there's become greater awareness of quote unquote, you know, structural racism uh, among many kind of white progressives and the center left, there's less understanding of how that maps onto you know, law, like there's, there's a certain understanding that like civil rights law prohibits discrimination. And then you get kind of, a lot of fuzziness. And then there's a, 
oh, well, that's clearly not a racist law. And your description of disparate impact and what that standard would mean in this context was super clarifying in your article. So I was hoping you could kind of talk through that a little more. Yeah, for sure. So the disparate impact standard is a legal doctrine in the Fair Housing Act that ensures that the plaintiff, whoever brings the case, doesn't have to prove a policy was necessarily designed to discriminate, but it just has to show that there was a discriminatory effect against a protected class. In that case, a government can then just say, you know, there's a neutral, non-discriminatory reason why they implemented that policy, but um, they have to show that there wasn't another way to achieve those goals that doesn't discriminate. So one example of this was in 1981 um, in the town of Huntington, New York. Um, the local to the NAACP sued the town over its refusal to allow um, more multifamily housing to be built in a section of town that was 98% white and zoned for single family homes. And basically there was a small part of town where they all, they allowed for multifamily zoning and they didn't allow it anywhere else. Um, and that obviously um, was a big problem and, and was very had segregationist impact. Um, so the NAACP won that case and they proved that the defendant implemented a policy that would have significantly perpetuated segregation and that the alleged reasons for doing so, it was things like traffic, like parking, inadequate play areas. These are, quote, weak justifications, according to the court. So this is a type of analysis where you need real research to be done. Like they had to not just be like, oh, in theory, people who are less well off are predominantly black and Hispanic. And that means that if you don't allow for different types of housing, then you won't be able to have the neighborhood. They had to show the number of people that were black and Hispanic, where they live. They had to show like who would be likely to take up these types of apartments. And, you know, that's in a town called in Huntington, New York. Like if you try to do that in places that are uh, much more complicated, there are a lot more people, the dynamics of who would move there and for where they would move is much more difficult. You need really um, strong researchers. You need economists and social scientists and planners um, working together with the goal of figuring this stuff out. So it does mean that it is a, a difficult case to bring to court and it's expensive for the federal government to do. But it is right now the way that you would actually get at a lot of these things because you don't actually have like, you know, the kinds of uh, laws anymore on the books in most places where it says we're not going to allow black people to live in this kind of town, which is an easy case to quickly get overturned. And so that's the way that, you know, the federal government can kind of engage on this. One note, but before we take a break, you know, if people people are interested, I looked up uh, HUD's new principal general counsel for enforcement. His his Twitter account is locked, so I can't see what he's tweeting. But he he follows me on there, so I am I am bullish. Does he follow Jerusalem though? That's the question. <laughs> well, no, I can't tell. I can only tell that he follows <laughs> oh, me. Okay. So Jerusalem's going to have to check it out. But I mean, I think he's. I think we'll do he's, some reporting he's, during the break. He's he's getting all the right <laughs> messages. Um, so I I want to take a break. I I want to return to Cory Booker's plan to destroy the suburbs um, and some other ways that the federal government could potentially get involved. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So President Trump, former President Trump, while running for re-election, he kept saying that if Biden became president, that Biden was going to let Cory Booker destroy the suburbs. And a lot of people had a negative reaction to that uh, because it, um, well, it seemed kind of racist and demagogic. Uh, but the fact is that Cory Booker, along with James Clyburn, um, has sponsored legislation that they call the Home Act that uh, is actually incredibly aggressive in tackling exclusionary zoning in the suburbs. And they would make community development block grant and uh, Department of Transportation, surface transportation block grant funding contingent on cities adopting pro-housing zoning rules. Um, This is something that, you know, it's pretty radical. There's like a couple other bills out there. There's the YIMBY Act, Build More Homes Near Transit, uh, that are in Congress and that take on sort of like pieces of this. But the Booker-Clyburn legislation like is in fact the most far-reaching legislative effort to, to tackle these things. The funding mechanism is in some ways a... I don't know if it's a bigger stick, but it's like a more reliable stick than litigation, uh, because if it really works, right, then it's like cities. I mean, not every city wants these grants, which is something you, you talk about, Jerusalem, but like like some places do like it means there's money on the table. And if you want it, like you have to come into compliance with, with the terms, which is a little bit more. um you know, it just like has like a closer relationship between means and ends than than kind of years of, of litigating. And you talk a little bit uh, about this in, in your piece. And, and I wonder what you think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that's really important and Emily Hamilton at Mercator Center said this to me, too, um, was just that it's really important to tie funding not to intent, but to outcomes. And she has an idea that we should um, kind of have race to the top funding structure where there's another pool of money that we just create and you just 
you know, every year you rank them so that like, you know, no one gets complacent and then everyone has opportunity to get this kind of money. But yeah, I mean, I I think a really great way of incentivizing um, the less discriminatory but still discriminatory areas, predominantly cities and maybe major counties that rely on federal grants for transportation or for community development, federal dollars, um, is tying this money to it. But yeah, I know, Matt, you referenced this, but uh, Jenny Schutz at Brookings has a study where she kind of looked at New Jersey and California to see specifically at the community development block grants, which is one of them, grants that Booker uh, and Clyburn suggest tying to these kinds of reforms. And in California, only 17% of the most exclusive communities received any CDBG funding, um, compared with 37% of less exclusive communities. And then in New Jersey, none of the most exclusive communities receive any direct CDBG funding. So, I mean, it's it's something where, you know, you should we should definitely do it. There's a lot of room for growth. I think that one of the big things here is just grasping how big of a problem this is. Like this is everywhere in America. There are different places where it will be more useful economically to to change things like New York or, or L.A. where there are high productivity cities where more people could move to. But, you know, every place needs to be doing this because as we've seen over the pandemic, there are clearly a bunch of things that can change what cities become more high opportunity. We're seeing people move to Phoenix, to Austin, all these different places. And we don't want to be entrenching the same problems in these other cities that are already entrenched in some of our coastal superstar cities. So, so I think it's a very useful tool, but I think we need to be really cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of places that don't need this money that are places where we really want to ensure that opportunity is still being shared. I'm really super glad that you brought that up, Jerusalem, because it also brings up the question of soft versus hard targets. Uh, and like, it's not, you know, I think that we have a lot of evidence on the stuff that, you know, can change some of the more symbolic aspects of like movement on racial justice you can see that there's a big difference between places where it's, you know, everyone is in agreement that quote, whatever, once you can agree that something is quote unquote progressive, you will get all relevant stakeholders on board. And like, it's fairly easy to get change done or where change is already moving in that direction. And, you know, exogenous events are just an accelerant versus the places where, you know, change is harder, which may or may not be the places where change is most needed. I found it very interesting that your article, which starts by looking at the metropolitan area of Nashville and the suburb of Franklin there, which is kind of set up as this stereotypically exclusionary suburb. Like when you called them up, they actually pointed out that they've been more permissive in granting multifamily zoning over the last couple of years than single family. And I was wondering, is is it the case that there are a lot of places out there like Franklin, where like, even in the absence of more aggressive federal action, this sort of thing is being seen as like either the ideologically proper thing to do or just being seen as kind of an economic win-win situation as the Data for Progress poll laid out? Yeah. So I think that there are a lot of places that recognize, especially um, towns in, in, you know, the suburbs of more liberal cities and growing cities that realize that affordable housing is a major economic boon to them. Being able to build more of it is a workforce benefit. It's a benefit to the tax base. It's it's really, really good. And um, you don't have some of the big entrenched interests because, you know, in places like Franklin, like there's a lot of land to build like further out and stuff like that. So people can have single family homes or a lot of rural places. But I think the big thing here and the interesting thing about Franklin and Nashville in particular is that, you know, in general, a lot of the um, progressive pro-housing movement has been really pushing for state preemption. And what that means is that, you know, for instance, in California, you want the state to take over or at least rescind some authority for localities to discriminate or to have really, really harsh zoning laws on the books. 
But in Nashville and in Franklin, the problem is that the Tennessee state government is actually really hostile to a lot of changes um, that would liberalize these zoning laws, um, which is a different <laughs> dynamic. And so they've actually banned inclusionary zoning in the state of Tennessee uh, and in Nashville and Franklin are not able to do as much as they would otherwise do. But you're right, Dara, that there are still these movements to provide more housing because, I mean, if you're just a person in a town who is in charge of your zoning code, you want to have a growing economy. You want more money coming into your town. And like, also, I think that a lot of credit has to be done to the pro housing movement, which has become, you know, a much bigger political force than it was 10, 20 years ago, um, which has been pushing for these things, which has been making clear the argument um, that it is an economic harm to continue behaving this way. And it's also a justice problem. When I was talking to officials at Franklin, they brought up um, knowing that this is a justice issue, knowing that they wish they could um, reach out to people like Kanitha, who was the woman I, I profiled in my piece, who was unable to move or unable to even see herself as potentially moving to a place like Franklin. She doesn't view that as a place where people like her, um, she's a black mom of six um, who has been homeless several times in her life, could ever find a place to live. So I think that there's a lot to be done. I think it's very clear that this message is filtering into um, a lot of people who are who are in the planning community, people who are uh, working in towns. And it is something that it just makes sense to people as something that should be done in order to improve the lives of their residents. And it's 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 something that I think that, uh, you know, the Biden administration should look at as looking at places where you already see these kinds of movement and actually coming in and aiding them and using them as an example of how we should be moving forward so that it can be seen as less of a hostile federal government versus local government issue and more of a let's partner together to figure this stuff out because obviously um, there are local concerns here. You're never going to get rid of this idea that people want to have some control over where they live and what their surroundings look like. And that's never going to go away. That's what people are like. And, um, you know, it's it's very rational in some respects. And because of that, you need to make sure that that vision of what their future is, is in line with one that also produces an economically vibrant and diverse community. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> I, to, to Jerusalem's point about sort of pro-housing movement gaining more clout, right? That, you know, as recently as the Obama administration, like pro-housing as a political agenda was so nowhere. It was like just a totally inside baseball elite thing. Um, and so now that it's become more high profile, has real traction in several state legislatures, I think it's important to engage with the details of the federal legislative process in a smart way. Um, like you were saying, right, the main thing that a lot of people come up with, and this goes back to Todd Young, um, whose heart is in the right place, and he, he wrote Yimby Act, which was the first measure that proposed sort of tying zoning reform to community development block grant receipt. And this makes a lot of sense to members of Congress because CBDG is done by HUD. So you have a housing topic, so you look at the housing agency and then you look at what does the housing agency do? And while like HUD does rental assistance, HUD runs public housing, oh, they have this grant program that goes to cities. Okay, we can leverage this grant program, right? Uh, but as uh, you were saying, you know, Emily Hamilton's analysis, Jenny Schutz's analysis all indicates that like this won't actually work. Right. And so it would not be great. Well, I wouldn't say it doesn't work. It's not well, gonna, it's not going to fix everything. <laughs> it is. It, it's a low leverage tool. Right. You don't want to have like a huge political fight over a low leverage tool. Mm. You want to put your activism and your energy behind 
a high leverage tool because it's like it's hard to get on the agenda, right? If you get a moment in time when like people care about housing reform, it's important to get the the details right. And that's where like outcomes versus inputs makes a difference because you could say, okay, you have to eliminate exclusive single family zoning. And everyone's like, oh my God, they're going to eliminate exclusive single family (laughs) zoning. But then once it's done, you can say, well, there has to be a maximum number of kitchens per structure and something about the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can do it, right? Like if you actually don't want to let people build apartment buildings, you can find lots of ways to make that happen. So California passed a big uh, sort of reform, essentially making cities let people build accessory dwelling units, like small apartments in a basement or a garage. And it was like a big fight and they got it done. And then a bunch of towns turned around and they were like, oh, well, you need two extra parking spaces per ADU. And that just meant nobody did it because nobody just has like (laughs) four spare parking spots right in, in their house. So they had to pass like multiple laws eventually like tightening the screws on all this. And that's in a state legislature where like there was a Democratic supermajority where things pass with 50% plus one vote. We have initiatives, things like that. The Senate is so uh, slow that it's like you can't afford to like put a big win on the table that then doesn't like deliver the goods, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think uh, Booker's move, Booker and Clyburn's move to bring in the surface transportation grants is so important because it like, it breaks the rules of Congress to like take an issue from one committee and put it into another committee's problem. Uh, But it's a much more powerful lever because so many more communities want that transportation money than want the community development block grant money, right? So like, um, you know, Los Angeles gets surface transportation block grant money, right? Like Los Angeles is a really big deal. A lot of people live there. Uh, There's a lot of housing affordability problems. They spent a ton of money building this L.A. metro, and then they didn't change the zoning at all. So nobody lives near the stations and nobody rides it. It's like a big it's a big mess. So I just like I think it's, it's important to sort of get people focused on these kind of like nitty gritty concepts to make sure that if anything ever does happen, because I think it might, like there's some bipartisan appeal to this because like, it's really like a pro growth. It's a deregulatory thing. It's kind of exposes progressive hypocrisy. Like there's just like angles here that some conservatives like as well as, as some progressives. At one point, Ben Carson was a housing reform advocate uh, before Donald Trump uh, kind of flip-flopped on that. Donald Trump, <laughs> even at one point in his life, was an urban infill real estate developer. So there's like there's like a lot of actually possibility for change, right? But then you need to make sure that like that we do something that works. I do think, Matt, I, th- I, I thought that you were going in a less policy-focused direction, which was probably my mistake uh, with this. But like, I think that when we're talking about, okay, where is the opportunity for federal action, especially when we're talking legislatively, it's not just a question of how things poll. And this is where I think, you know, the message testing kind of polling that Vox and Data for Progress did is useful to a certain extent, but not necessarily the best proxy for how do you build an agenda? Because there's also the question of salience, right? And like, this is something that, I mean, I am almost certainly overlearning the lesson from like my beat. 
But immigration for a while had shallow bipartisan, for a long time had shallow bipartisan support uh, that led to a lot of bills getting introduced in Congress and like not ultimately making it across because once anti-immigration sentiment got activated on the right, you know, these shallow bipartisan arguments in favor weren't necessarily enough to convince waivers on, and for that matter, you know, the existence of labor as a, as a traditionally anti, you know, immigration liberalization force on the left overwhelmed the kind of shallow normative arguments that were being made to persuade democratic senators. So it does seem to me that we are at a point at present where the, it's not necessarily the case that the bipartisanship of an issue undermines its urge, the urgency that one side or the other feels about it. But there is that to a certain extent there is. And I think that this is also where the kind of racial justice versus economic justice framing discussion comes into place. What people in the democratic coalition see as their most urgent priorities right now is shaped to a certain extent by this kind of recent surge of concern for racial inequality among like elite white progressives. Mm -hmm. And it does strike me as an interesting problem in like our current nationalized politics where, yeah, property rights are going to play super well in New Hampshire, but like you don't actually get to just make the property rights argument in New Hampshire because once you make an argument somewhere, it's going to get picked up and broadcast everywhere else. Or for that matter, you know, making the argument on historical racism in New England, where like some of the worst zoning restrictions are, isn't necessarily going to make a whole lot of sense in places that don't have a deep history um, or, you know, where the history is, does, doesn't extend back quite as far to be sure. And so it, I do think that there's something worth teasing out here about the questions of you know, making the arguments that will appeal to the broadest number of people or that will that will minimize backlash mm -hmm. and making the arguments that are most likely to make people think this is the thing we need to fight for right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just to explain to, to listeners of the poll that Dara is talking about. So um, we ran uh, we have a partnership with Data for Progress where we get to run a few questions um, every week. And one of the questions we asked um, was just trying to suss out um, whether a racial justice or an economic uh, uh, argument in favor of multifamily construction would be more persuasive. And so the racial justice argument um, has a net support of positive one. Uh, neither one clears 50%. Um, you have 44% in support and 43% opposition. Um, there's a margin of error of two points. So, you know, that's pretty, <laughs> no one knows which one's really up. Um, but you have 14% of people who say they don't know. And then when you go to the economic justice argument where we talk about high opportunity regions, good jobs, uh, affordable housing, support goes to 47%. But the real story to me is that op opposition drops to 37%. So it goes from 43 to 37. So net support increases 10 points relative to the racial justice argument when you're talking about economic justice. And I think the really important thing to note here is along the lines of what you just said, Dara, is that it's about not activating the opposition from racial animus grounds. So you have Republicans at negative 29 when you tell them about um, how zoning requirements lock in segregation, blocks Black Americans from economic opportunity and homeownership. And then from negative 29, you get to 
to negative 15. That's a 14 point jump in net support on Republicans part when you talk to them just about the economic argument. You have a few more undecideds. I think it's two more points um, undecided as a whole overall. But I think that this is a really big point here is that you don't want to be unnecessarily activating people to be opposed to your policy on grounds that are uh, maybe not even relevant to them specifically in where they live. And um, I think there's a really great parallel here to immigration. And I do think that like, you know, this is not an argument. If you have a friend, uh, you know, who's a homeowner in your area and you know that they really care about BLM and like there's someone who you think you can have a conversation with about racial justice, like I'm not saying don't talk to them. Like I'm sure like have a good, con- you know, your friend, like do that. But the question is really like when you have such a nationalized media network, you need to decide like which, what your actual messaging strategy is going to be because that's going to have a huge impact. And I'm, I'm of the opinion here that like, I don't think it's possible to stop a lot of um, like local activist groups from making this racial justice argument, nor do I think that they, they necessarily need to need to stop doing that because I think that they know their communities really well. But I do think that when it's coming from the federal government, we're at a crossroads here where um, polarization along party lines hasn't happened on this issue. It's polarization along whether or not you're a homeowner or you're a renter that's, that's happening right now. Clearly making the case over and over again, talking about economic fairness, but also talking clearly that, you know, there's not going to be a major problem with property values if you allow um, more density. I mean, there's like significant research at this point that it actually raises property values in an area the closer you are to a new multifamily apartment building. And I think making the clear case over and over again and describing what a vibrant community is to folks as one that is growing economically and one that is diverse racially and across many other valences is not that far removed from why people move to cities in the first place. There's this great paper by Yale professor David Schleicher called Stuck um, and is published in 2017. I remember I read it when I was in college and a big part of the paper is just describing how these types of housing regulations had essentially locked people in to cities and towns they no longer wanted to live in. You know, I was at a point in my life where I was like, I was so excited. I was graduating from college and I felt like I could go anywhere in the world and realizing that we had shrunk the number of people that were allowed to feel that way, that were allowed to feel like I could go to anywhere I wanted to go, get a job and like grow that opportunity Uh, and make sure that my kids have a better life than I do and making clear to people that we are literally enforcing this by law, not allowing people to move from areas of low opportunity to high opportunity, not because there's not enough room, not because it would hurt anyone else, um, but just because some people have an irrational fear that it could harm their personal uh, self-interest is something that I think will activate a lot of people in a way that doesn't um, become a racial issue. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, so much of this comes down to the difference between saying, okay, is letting people indulge their racial fears costly to the community, or is it in fact rational and beneficial to them, mm-hmm. right? It's it's not like an either or choice. I'm like, do you say, well, we're talking about economic growth or we're talking about racial justice? It's a question of like, what are you saying the point mm-hmm. of racial justice is mm-hmm. right that like because people will will say okay well this has been like um heather mcgee's thing lately in, in the media but like are we talking about like a zero-sum redistribution of like access to like good jobs or being near a park or are we talking about a more inclusive society that is better off as a whole right mm-hmm. and housing is where that becomes like really literal Right. Like the neighborhood can incorporate more people like it doesn't have to be the case that like if one person gets to live here, somebody else has to be squeezed out. But like the built environment rules um, structure that. 
in a sort of incredible and, and profound way. Uh, that Schleicher paper is great. His approach to this, the more economics focused, has like become a little unfashionable lately. Um, and the racial justice people have been more successful in getting traction, which is great for them. Uh, but now I think it's time to just like plug back in a little more like old timey economic growth is good. People like to have jobs. Like there's a, there's, I don't know, like normally when you have a major reform, like people make multiple arguments on its behalf. So I don't think that's in any way abnormal. Yeah. And I also just think it's worth sussing out here. Like it is literally true. And my article on um, race housing rules kind of goes through the racist histories of these laws that, that black Americans in particular, and also, um, you know, other people of color have been systematically discriminated against. And even now we are seeing people talking about new development as those kinds of people. And, you know, I'm referenced like, you know, a comment someone made in another case about how it was people like the show in cops would, would be coming into your neighborhood. So I think that one of the things here is like, I, I want to make clear that obviously we think that there's a better way to be convincing more people and not activating racial animus. But I think it is a hard thing to tell people that this thing that is true, that is literally harming you and your family and is a historical fact, uh, may not be the most beneficial way to actually getting the change that we need here. And I think that that is, is, is really hard because it's not that it's false. It's not that there's anything wrong with the argument. It's just that, you know, there are a lot of people who, when they hear things like, oh, we need to re- make sure that Black Americans have access to the economic dream, they view that as something that's being taken away from them. And I know, uh, Matt, you just uh, referenced Heather McGee, but her book, The Some of Us, really talks about this zero-sum thinking. And I think uh, folks should definitely read that if they're if they're interested in the history of that. The thing that I want to bring up as a caution, though, is that talking about preferred messaging uh, always strikes me as a little bit, what can make it a little bit difficult to replicate outside of a laboratory setting is that you don't get to control the arguments that your opponents use. And it is absolutely the case that when the side of an argument that is aligned with pro-racial justice, like makes non-racial arguments, opponents to that policy can still make racialized arguments against it and activate backlash that mm-hmm. way. And, you know, it's, it's definitely, I mean, whether that is like dog whistle politics or explicitly racial stuff. And like, frankly, you know, I, I think that in this context, the kind of cops, you know, it, like the TV show cops thing you're referencing counts as fairly explicit. You're not going to get something, you're not going to get that bigger red flag uh, necessarily, but, you know, character of the neighborhood kind of arguments can activate racial animus, whether or not the people who are in favor of deregulating zoning want that to happen. And so it's definitely, you know, worth bearing in mind that even the most carefully selected message in the world isn't necessarily going to neutralize backlash. It can, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, be a question of, is the backlash enough to move the kind of squishy center of things? And are the people who are in favor of the policy passionate enough about it that they're willing to fight through the backlash and make it clear to politicians that there are costs on either side? Yeah. All right, let's let's take a break um, and, and do our white paper. Okay, uh, our paper for you today is The Health Costs of Cost Sharing by Amitabh Chandra, Evan Flack, and Ziad Obermeyer. Uh, this is a great paper it, it, to, I think, understand what's going on in it. I just want to give a little bit of background. Uh, so in 2003, uh, mostly Republicans with some Democratic support created a prescription drug benefit for Medicare recipients. This had been a big Democratic issue. It was like Democrats' big winning issue in Bush 
Bush era politics. So if Republicans did a defensive prescription drug benefit that they weren't really enthusiastic about. And so the way they tried to make it affordable was that they focused on providing sort of catastrophic coverage. If your prescription drug costs got really, really, really high, the government would pick up the tab. But they wanted to pass the law and then say to like every senior citizen in America, oh, look, we helped you. So they also gave senior citizens first dollar coverage. Then they created this weird gap where so like the federal government would cover some of your prescription drug costs, then none of your prescription drug costs, and then all of your prescription drug costs again, depending on how high they got. This policy design made no sense. It's called the the quote-unquote donut hole. Democrats in Congress, I think a little bit unwisely, closed the donut hole in the Affordable Care Act, but this like was not main point of that law. So they never, you know, so like they never got credit from the targets of the policy, right? Senior citizens who had Medicare heard that Democrats were doing these taxes and death panels and all this stuff to provide coverage to the uninsured. And they like never heard that they were getting this. At any rate, during the donut hole years, we got an interesting experiment because not only was the donut hole weird, but when you hit the donut hole was based on uh, how much expenses you racked up in a calendar year. But when you enroll in Medicare is based on when you turn 65. So if you turn 65 on like December 2nd, you were almost certainly not going to hit the donut hole that year. But if you turn 65 on January 2nd, you almost certainly would, right? So this is like poor implementation of a bad policy idea. And as we know, often on the weeds, it's like dumb policy design creates interesting research designs. And they were able to look at this, therefore, like what happens to people when they hit the donut hole? in a way that is not correlated with your actual health. It's just sort of arbitrary variation based on when you happen to have been born. It turns out when people have to bear more of the cost of their own prescription drugs, they cut back on prescription drug use and they do so in a totally arbitrary way. They don't distinguish at all between drugs that are super duper important and drugs that are a little maybe take it or leave it. Um, and so even though the copayments are not large in this program, the impact on health is extremely negative. Like people who in some sense probably could scrimp and save and keep getting their most likely life-saving medicines, like they just like they don't prioritize like that. They arbitrarily cut back on prescription drug intake and lots of people die. And it is a really, um, I don't know, just like a bleak assessment of the idea that giving people a little more skin in the game will help them make better decisions about their health care. And I think I, it's about uh, the underlying hazard is what I thought was really interesting about this paper. So there's something called moral hazard, which we thought in which I mean, some people thought um, going into this would indicate that people when asked to pay a little bit more for their prescription drugs would cut back because if in case they were over consuming the way that I think about this is like maybe I'm like, OK, my ibuprofen is a little bit more expensive now. Like this headache isn't really worth taking a, uh, a tablet or anything like that. Um, but what they actually found was something called behavioral hazard. I mean, um, theoretically, that's what it should be, is that 
that, you know, people are responding to prices in ways that deviate from a cost benefit analysis systematically, meaning that if someone doesn't understand the difference between their high value treatments and their low value treatments. And so are arbitrarily cutting um, the types of treatments they actually demand um, without reference to their actual health outcomes. And to me, this like really reads as just another indictment of an overcomplicated healthcare system where people don't really understand the drugs that they're taking, what kinds of treatments are valuable to them, to their longevity. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's a real problem that when people go to the doctor, you know, the doctors don't have time to really go through with you, like why each pill is relevant to you and how it helps you stay alive. Or maybe this one's just for like gas or whatever. And like they have no idea. They're just like filtering it into their little Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday little boxes and taking them every day. And it doesn't mean anything to them, like what it's actually doing to their bodies. And, um, you know, I just think that, that was what was most striking to me about this paper. The finding that you were outlining, Jerusalem, is even more impressive when you think about the fact that, uh, and this was surprising to me because I'm kind of a normie when it comes to healthcare papers, that there hasn't been a lot of research directly estimating price, the impact of price on health, which you think would be like a central question in healthcare research. And it's not that like people have been ignoring it. It's just that as the authors of this study point out, mortality is rare. And so you'd have, you have to get a massive sample of people. Like they, they point out, they actually use our old friend, the Oregon health insurance experiment as a comparison here and point out that for a fully randomized study, you would need like 325,000 patients in your sample size. And the Oregon health insurance experiment treatment group was 9,000 patients. Um, so it is, you know, it's, it's fair, but the workaround here has been that economists have used kind of expert analysis of what the highest value healthcare treatments are and said, okay, when people are kind of in a cost crunch, there isn't discrimination between higher value interventions and lower value interventions, which kind of makes it seem like, oh, individual consumers are making bad decisions about their health and should be triaging better, which is like, which is moderately consistent with the finding that Jerusalem was talking about with people just, you know, giving up on filling their drug, their prescription drug benefits entirely, but also, you know, ignores the fact that what is low value to one person might be particularly high value to someone else. And the authors of this paper noticed that in some of the cases where stopping filling your prescriptions can be most deleterious to health effects, it's the exact people who are at highest risk who are most likely to stop taking those drugs. And that, especially when you frame it that way, makes it seem a little bit less like a failure of individual decision making Mm -hmm. and more like a problem of the choice infrastructure being presented to patients is very focused on, you know, how to best manage your costs and doesn't necessarily give them, you know, the tools to decide at the beginning of the year, what behaviors can I engage in now so that come December, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a position where I feel like I can't spend any more money on drugs, so I can't refill my prescription for statins. I agree. All right, uh, let's wrap that up. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Jerusalem. This was great. Hope to have you back on here again. Thanks, as always, uh, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, 
fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.